It's a highlight reel for David. So he becomes the king in chapter 5. He takes Jerusalem, makes it the capital of Israel. He brings the ark, the symbol of God's presence, into the capital city, Jerusalem. In chapter 7, he expresses to God a deep desire to build God a house, to make a temple for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. And so there's this covenant initiated by God with David and David's descendants, which includes Jesus. Then last week we saw chapter 8, all of these battles. David defeats the nations, and the defeat of those nations is the fulfillment of a promise God makes to David personally. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies, and a promise God has made to the people of Israel. I'm going to give you all a place where you're not going to be disturbed anymore. Again, what we're seeing here in chapters 5 through 10 is David as an ideal king. David as the, 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 the example for what a king of Israel should be. In chapters 9 and 10, we'll look at chapter 9 this week, chapter 10 next week, we see David as a covenant keeper. Again, it's an ideal picture. It's 100% true, but it's a snapshot of David as someone who is going to great lengths to honor covenants that he's made with people who, who maybe would not n- normally be uh, the recipients of such a covenant. In chapter 11, we see David as a covenant breaker. But in chapter 9 and chapter 10, we really see him, again, in an ideal sense, as a covenant keeper. So that's what we're going to look at today, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, Saul is the first king of Israel. Jonathan is Saul's son, David's best friend. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned Ziba to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land, excuse me, are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So at some point in David's probably peaceful years towards the end of his reign, and he says, I want to show kindness. That'll be the key word for us today. I want to show kindness to some. David and Jonathan have made a covenant. You can look at it. It's first mentioned in 1 Samuel 18. 
but there's no detail given. And some detail is given in 1 Samuel 20. So a, a covenant is a binding relationship that two people enter into. And the, the heart of a covenant is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. It's a relational commitment that you make to someone. And Jonathan and David enter in. It's actually initiated by Jonathan, who in 1 Samuel 18 and in 1 Samuel 20 is really in a position of, of power and leadership. David is the son of Jesse. He has killed Goliath, but he doesn't really have a place. Uh, officially, he has been called by God to be the king. He doesn't really have a role. Jonathan is the son of the king and the heir apparent. And he willingly enters into this relationship with David. And as time goes on, and it becomes more and more clear that David is going to be the king, Jonathan reaffirms his covenant with David several times in 1 Samuel 20 and in 1 Samuel 23. In 1 Samuel 23, he explicitly says, you're going to be the king and I'm going to be second to you. He takes this posture of, of submission and subordination to David, which is a huge deal. Uh, Jonathan's whole life, he most likely was thinking, that's my birthright. I'm going to be the king. That's what everybody told him. He was the heir apparent to Saul and to willingly say, David, that's, that's your role, that's your calling, and I'm going to be second to you. It says a lot about Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, we see some of the details. What David asks of Jonathan is, you've got to protect me from your dad. He's trying to kill me, and you've got to protect me. And Jonathan says, I'll do that. And when you become the king, you don't kill people in my family. That would have been a normal, kind of normal course of business if a new family took power, the old family that was in power. That way there'd be no potential rivals there. And so what Jonathan says to David is, when you become the king, don't wipe out my, don't kill my kids. And don't kill my grandkids. You, you watch out for us. And David and Jonathan both mutually commit to that. Jonathan says, David, right now, I'm going to choose to protect you from my dad, even though that costs me. David's life means Jonathan doesn't get to rule and reign. I'm going to willingly do that. I'm going to protect you. And then, David, when you're on the throne, you're going to run the risk of my son or my grandson being a rival. You're not going to kill them. And they mutually agree to that. So now we're 20-something years later, and David is saying... Is there anybody left? Remember, Saul's been killed. All of his sons have been killed. Jonathan's dead, been dead for a couple of decades. And David is saying, who, who can I show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? The only two people who knew about the covenant are David and Jonathan, and Jonathan's dead. It does say something about David that he's willing to try to find somebody to express kindness to. And so he calls Ziba. You can think of Ziba as a property manager. So he's been managing Saul's estate, which is in Gibeah, which is about three miles north of Jerusalem, which is where, David's, is where David lives. That's the capital city. You see it there. So Ziba's there in Gibeah, and that's Saul's hometown, and Saul's estate. Ziba's a, a rich guy on, in his own right, and he's managing the estate and benefiting from that personally. And Ziba says, well, yeah, there, there is one. There's a, a son of Jonathan who's crippled. And he lives up in Lodabar, which is about 60 miles away. So to me, that means, his name's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is hiding. There's no reason for him to be living up there. It's nowhere near where his grandfather's and then his father's land was. He's living in somebody else's house. I think he's hiding. He was five years old when he became crippled. 
when word came to his nurse in the home that Jonathan had died, she's running away in trips, and Mephibosheth is crippled at that point. But he would have no idea that a covenant had been made between Jonathan and David. He wouldn't know that. He wouldn't know that his dad had set up a covenant with David to protect him. So I think he's hiding 60 miles away, just laying low, partly because, again, the normal course of business is David should kill me because I'm from the family of Saul. Saul, at this point, 20-something years into David's reign, probably is looking worse and worse as time goes on. David is probably looking more and more like an ideal king, and in comparison, Saul is probably fading in whatever glory he already, he did have, is fading. And so Mephibosheth is probably thinking, it's just best if I lay low away from the king. Then knock, knock, knock on Makir's door, and it's Ziba or a messenger from David, and they say, hey, the king wants to see you. And I would imagine what is running through Mephibosheth's mind is, oh, no, this is it. It's like he's been hiding for 20 years. He's married now. He has a son. He's probably thinking, let's just, let, let's just keep, keep it quiet. And now he's summoned to Jerusalem. Most likely, he's thinking something bad is going to happen. I'm going to be killed. Maybe I'll be imprisoned. Definitely not thinking when he gets there that David is going to extend this kindness to him. And you can see, David says when he sees Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. He's saying don't be afraid because Mephibosheth is apprehensive, as well he probably should be. Again, he doesn't know the backstory, And he doesn't know David. What David says to him is, I want to show kindness to you because of your father. We had a covenant. And you're going to be a beneficiary of that covenant. And that kindness takes two forms. One, I'm going to give you back all your father's land. So the land that Zeba has been running, then he looks at Zeba, you're going to still run. But instead of you getting the benefit from that, Mephibosheth is going to start getting the benefit of that. So now Mephibosheth, who's crippled and can't farm, he's going to be taken care of. He doesn't have to rely on someone else. It's his land and, and Ziba's going to be his property manager, and he's going to run the farm, and Mephibosheth is going to get the, the money from that. And you're going to eat with me. I'm going to bring you into my house. I don't know if that literally meant that they sat down at the family table every night, or if it was just it just meant Mephibosheth was welcome in, in the palace, and they ate together some, and I'm sure kings are busy. So, But he got to eat with them. It's a, to me, it's a sign of restored position and restored honor. Again, if I'm thinking about life as the crippled son of a maybe somewhat disgraced, the crippled grandson of a somewhat disgraced king, probably not great. And then when you're brought into the good graces of a very popular and well-liked and well-known and king, that changes things. So Mephibosheth's life changes in that moment. He went most likely thinking something bad would happen. And David, for the sake of covenant, extends this kindness to him. Changes Ziba's life too. We'll talk about him more. He comes back up in 2 Samuel 16. He's a mixed bag for me. I'm not positive on his motives. But he does, at this point, there's nothing to say, but okay, the king's telling him what to do. So his life changes and he goes from working for himself back to working for someone in Saul's family. In this case, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, it says, eats at the king's table. He's in the home uh, for the rest of his life. Key word for us again is kindness. 
When we hear kindness, sometimes we think of niceness. That's not, I would say that's not a great understanding of this word in this case. The Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-E-S-E-D, H-E-S-E-D, excuse me, H-E-S-E-D. And it's a huge word in the Old Testament, very weighty, very powerful. Your Bible may translate it covenant loyalty or covenant love, a New Testament parallel word. Maybe agape, that self-giving love that we talk about God displayed for us and sending his son. What he asks us to love others with is self-giving love. So agape or hesed, in this case, it's translated kindness. It's a commitment to do what's best for someone else, even if it costs you personally. So you can go all the way back to 1 Samuel 20. And when Jonathan commits to protecting David from Saul, he's doing that at personal cost. That means I don't get to be the king. Because if you're alive, then you get to be the king because God's called you. So Jonathan says, I'm going to do what's best for David. Keep him safe from my dad, even though it costs me personally. I don't get to be the king. David does something similar, though at this, when he makes the covenant... There's no risk for him. It's all upside. Huge risk for Jonathan, all upside for David. But what he does say with the future in mind is, and I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do what's best for you and your family, which is keep you all alive. Even though that comes at risk to me, y'all could wind up trying to take back the throne that God has given to me. Your son, Mephibosheth, probably not a threat as a, a crippled man, But he does have a grandson, Micah. He's brought him back into the palace that could give him some legitimacy and maybe he's ambitious. Doesn't work out that way, but it could be. David doesn't know that at the time. There's a bit of a risk there. So even, I'm going to do what's best for your family, keep them alive, even though there's risk involved for me. Maybe giving somebody an opportunity uh, to stage a coup. So that's what kindness in verse 1, verse 7, verse uh, 4 looks like. Is this word hesed, this idea of covenant love, or again, New Testament parallel, agape. It's the key relational dynamic of the kingdom. The key dynamic of the kingdom relationally is hesed or agape. It's this self-giving love. Covenant is the basis of kingdom relationships. One of the places where we get tripped up is we live in a community and in a society where contract is the basis of relationships. And contract and covenant are not the same thing. There's some overlap, but there's more difference than there is similarities. Every February we go on vacation with three other families. We've done it for eight or nine years or something. And Mary Margaret, my wife, is the one who finds the house. So she goes on VRBO and she... There's 20 of us in one house. It's definitely like, I mean, that is me written all over. So we do this, and it's great. And she finds the house for us, and she emails with the person, and they set the rate, and here are the days you can have it, and here's what you're going to pay, and here's how much you pay if you break something or if you don't strip the beds or if you don't take out the trash, and here's how much, here's the cancellation policy. All of They send her a contract. And she has to sign it. And then she turns around and sends an email to the other three families and says, here's what it costs, and here's your share. She doesn't send them a contract. She sends them an email. Contract and covenant, they're not the same. 
We don't treat the people who we love and trust the same way we treat someone we're just doing business with. But for many of us, again, most because most of our interactions are transactional, we have a contract mentality, and that can lead us to sin, to miss the mark on relationships that God has said are covenantal, not contractual. So, uh, contractual relationship, if you can even call it a relationship, again, it's transactional, and it's really based in, in, in mistrust. What I'm saying is, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't do what you say you're going to. It's, it's fine print and loopholes and legalese and technicalities. It's, all, it's self-protective. Here's how I'm going to be made whole if you don't honor what you said you would do. Again, think about in my example. Here's what you're going to pay me if you break something in my house. Here's what you're going to pay me if you don't clean up after yourself. Here's what you're going to pay me if you cancel too late and I can't get another renter in there. That's a contract. It's based on penalties. Here's what happens if for some reason you don't do what you say you're going to do. Self-protected. Covenants are very different, come from a very different place. They're based on relationship. They're self-giving. Here's what I'm going to do for you, regardless of what you do or don't do to me. It's spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. You can see that with David and Jonathan. The letter of the law, David won't kill Jonathan's family. David goes beyond that to the spirit of the law. I'm actually going to bless your family. I'm going to give Mephibosheth his land. I'm going to make sure Ziba and his sons and his servants work that land for Mephibosheth's benefit. And I'm going to bring Mephibosheth into my house and let him eat with me. It's not just about the food. He had a whole estate that was providing food for him. It was about the relationship. I'm bringing him in. What does we read in First? Excuse me, in 2 Samuel 9, he was like one of David's sons. That's what he's doing for him. It's about restoring relationship. The spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, I'm not going to kill anybody. David was already doing that. He didn't have to go looking for somebody to show kindness to. He hadn't killed any of Jonathan's kids or grandkids. He hadn't done that. So in that sense, he's already fulfilling the letter of the law, but... He wants to fulfill the spirit of it because it's a covenant and not a contract. He was technically in good standing. It wasn't good enough for David. He was going for the spirit of the, of the agreement he made with Jonathan, of the relationship that he established with Jonathan. And so he goes looking for somebody who he can bless, not just somebody he cannot kill. Covenant and contract, they're not the same. In a fallen world, you have to have contracts. Go ahead. Whatever you're going to do is going to be fine. In a fallen world, we've got to have contracts. People sin. People are greedy. People are wicked. People are selfish. That's us. And so we've got to have those things. You don't want to be in a covenantal relationship with Comcast. You don't. If you work with them, I apologize. You want a contract with them. Again, the place where we miss the mark is relationships that God has deemed to be covenantal. We make contractual. A primary one is marriage. If you're not married, 
You're just going to have to bear with me. I'm speaking to the married people. If you're divorced, you're going to feel bad. I'm, I'm just, you will. That's not my intention. I just can't say, I can't put all the disclaimers on or we'll be here till three. So if, if you are in this room and you're divorced, I'm not, I'm not hammering you. This is not, a, I'm not, there's a, a, a pastoral approach. I'm not taking that. I'm just being, I'm telling you, I want to speak very directly to people who are currently married. If you're divorced, don't, just don't take it on. Don't. So what I would say, marriage is covenantal. It's not contractual. Things got messed up when the government got involved, maybe with the best of intentions, and they got involved in marriage. And so it has become more contractual than God ever intended it to be. There's tax things and benefits and status and none of that stuff is Genesis 1 and 2. It's all fine, but none of that is Genesis 1 and 2. But what it's done for us as the church is we've seeded the ground on marriage and we've allowed it to become a contract when it's supposed to be a covenant. Read Genesis 1 and 2. For this reason, a man will leave his family and he will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That, there's, that, there's, no, there's no contract there. It's a covenant. Two becoming one. One man, one woman, until somebody dies. That's marriage. All of the other stuff, married, filing jointly, and who gets benefits, and who gets the inheritance, that's fine, and that's the responsibility of the state. It has nothing to do with biblical marriage. Marriage is a contract. When you got married, your wedding was a covenant-making ceremony. That's not on Pinterest, but that's the heart of what it is. You stood up and here's what you said. I take you to be my spouse from this day forward to have and to hold for better or for worse in sickness and health, for richer or for poor, to love and to cherish until one of us dies, until we're parted by death. This is my solemn vow. There, is no, there, there are no ifs in the wedding vow. They're not conditional statements. This is what I will do if you will do this. This is what I will do until you do this. It's an unconditional commitment that you're making to another. You're entering into a covenant, not a contract. There is no fine print. There are no loopholes. God gives three reasons that you can break the covenant of marriage. Abuse, abandonment, and adultery. That's it. Those three. And those three are a concession to the hardness of our heart, he says to Moses. Divorce is never his intention. You're trying to take something that's one and make it two again. It's always messy. And it's never complete. But because of our own brokenness, he's provided a way for people who have abandonment, abuse, adultery within that relationship. To get out. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. As a church, the church, we've seeded the ground there in some ways. It's not, it's nobody else's fault. It's not the divorce lawyer's fault. It's not the government's fault. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus to say, this is what it means. I've entered into a covenant with you. My personal happiness is not a factor my personal satisfaction is not a factor. My personal fulfillment is not a factor. Chemistry 
is not a factor. If I hear anyone else who's married to someone say, well, I found her and she's my soulmate, I'm going to stab someone in the eye. It's, it doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant who your soulmate is. You're in a covenant. You don't get to break it. You don't get to break it. In a marriage, you can be happy and you can be fulfilled and you can be satisfied with your soulmate. But if you're not, honestly, God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. And holiness is, I committed and I'm sticking outside of abuse and acquired to divorce. You're just allowed to do so. And that's between you and the Lord. I want to strongly encourage those of you who are married, if you don't have a covenantal mindset as you approach your spouse, ask the Lord to change your mind. And if, all you're, if, if what you're getting is what's floating around out there, then you don't have a covenantal mindset because nobody else does. That's not what's on TV. It's definitely not what anybody sings about. It's not on the movie. It's not, it's not there. That's not where you're getting it because that's not a value in our society, what we say is marriage should make me happy. And once I'm not happy, then I need to find someone else who will. And in the church, we say, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, right? So it's okay. I haven't found that verse yet. I've looked. Covenantal, not contractual. A couple of things. There's a thousand books. Go read one. But if you don't want to, here's three things that you can think about in your marriage. One, pray. Are you praying for your spouse every day? Regularly, Every day can feel like a legalism. If you're a covenant partner, what you're saying is, I want what's best for my spouse, even at great personal cost. When you're praying, what you're saying is, God, make that happen. God, bring about the best for him or her. You cannot pray for your spouse to be a better spouse. God doesn't hear that. You can pray for yourself to be a better spouse. But you certainly can't pray for them to be a better spouse. You pray for their best. That's what you're praying for every day. Whatever's the best thing for him or her, God, do that in them. Give them that. Work in those ways. Don't keep score. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. I would say, and love keeps no record of rights either. You don't keep score. Y'all ever play the game of who had the hardest day? When you come home and the loser has to make dinner, don't do it. Who had the, and it's subtle, right? You don't, it's not explicit. She talks and you're like, all right, you think you had a bad day. Let me tell you what a bad day looks like. Or you play the game of who did the most stuff. Hey, look what I did. I cut the grass and I trimmed the, and all right, if that's what we're doing. Well, here's what I did. You're all the ways that I loved you today. Neither one is good. You can't keep record of rights or wrongs. This is very difficult if you have a good memory. It makes it harder. It's honest. That's just honest. If you remember things, then you naturally keep a record. You're going to have to be very intentional before the Lord of letting things go. Maybe you can keep a little um, journal and it can be your scorecard. And you make sure nobody... Burn it. But when it comes to how you're relating, you can't be bringing that stuff in. It's not helpful. Because at that point, you're not saying, I'm doing what's best for you regardless of what it costs me. What you're saying is, 
What have you done for me lately? You're losing and I'm winning. You owe me. None of that is a, post- is a covenantal posture. That's a contractual posture. It's super easy to say I want to do what's best for you regardless of the cost to me when it's the honeymoon stage. That lasts for like 10 seconds in terms of the totality of your relationship. It's difficult daily. It's difficult over time. That's why it's so important for you to pray. You pray the best things for them. That puts you in a posture, In the, I would assume in the morning, it puts you in a posture early on to say, the way I'm approaching you today is I want what's best for you. Not I'm trying to see what I can get from you. And last thing I would say specifically to the men, wash your wives' feet. Serve them. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. How did Jesus love the church? He gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. So husbands, take your cue from him. Die for your wives. Serve them. Look for opportunities every day to serve them in ways that are meaningful to them, but you can't keep score. You can't. This, it's not sexist. It's a parable. That's why in a wedding, the man gives, says his vows first. It's a, pair, it's a picture of what Jesus does for us. Jesus never makes us guess how he feels about us. Jesus never make, we never have to wonder about Jesus' posture or stance towards us. What he says is, in Romans 5 is, while y'all were still enemies of mine, I died for you. So you don't have to wonder how I feel about you. You don't have to wonder about my stance towards you. You don't have to wonder if I'm going to reject you. I've already demonstrated the profound love I have for you by dying for you while you're an enemy of mine. It's safe to say yes to me. Marriage is the same thing. It's a a man, again, not sex, it's just a parable, saying to his wife, that's why he goes first in a wedding ceremony, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to have you and hold you, regardless. Sickness, health, wealth, poverty, better or worse, I'm committing myself to what's best for you, regardless of how you respond to me. It's creating a safe spot for her to say yes. She doesn't have to wonder. Continue to do that. Wash the feet of your wife. Teenagers, let me say this. Girls, make him ask you on a date. Don't hang out. Not worth it. If he's not will, if he doesn't want you enough to risk you saying no, he is not worth your time. He's not. Guys, they all ran away. The ones that were there. <laughs> ask. Ask. If you're dating, guys, it's part of your responsibility. Again, it's not sexist, it's a parable. It's part of your responsibility. You take the risk. If you're not willing to look like a fool or an idiot or get rejected in the dating engagement process, you're never going to be able to wash your feet long term. You've got to be willing to say, this is what I want. You. This is what I want. This is my commitment to you without being a sissy, saying, trying to figure out if you're going to say yes or no. Pray for your spouse. Don't keep score. Men, wash the feet of your wives. We're going to wrap up with communion. Again, if you're not married, 
I hope I didn't miss you completely. If you're divorced, I don't want you to hear any condemnation. That's not from the Lord, certainly. It's not what he does. If you desire to be married and you're not yet married, I would encourage you to think covenantally and not contractually. The question is not, does this person make me happy? The question is, am I willing to check that box? Then you can move ahead. The question, again, it's not about whether they make you happy, but whether you're willing to give your life for making, to make them happy. That's a covenantal approach to marriage. We're going to take communion. This is a symbol, a reminder of the new covenant that God has initiated with us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Marriage is just a, it's a poor picture of this perfect new covenant. Hebrews 8, we read that it's a, it's a new covenant, it's a better covenant than the covenant God had with the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's better for a couple of reasons. One is because of the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness is the mean, the beginning with the creation of Adam and Eve. It's a people he can call his own. And sin has separated us from God. And the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament were able to cleanse people externally but can never deal with the, the root causes of sin. But the death of Jesus can, says the author of Hebrews. And so we can be fully restored and reconciled to God, which is what he wants. Again, forgiveness is just a means to an end. The end being intimate relationship with him. It's what Bo was saying. In the Old Testament, holiness was communicated through distance and separation. Here's God and here's how different he is from you. And here's the one room where one guy can meet God for one hour, one day of the year and tie a rope around his ankle just in case he dies. You can pull him out. And in the New Testament, we read we can boldly approach the throne of grace. The one who is holy is also our father. And he doesn't say this has come no, this far and no farther. He says all the way in. It's a new covenant. And the blood of Jesus seals that for us. You can be forgiven this morning. You don't have to stand at a distance. You also read in Ezekiel 36, the new covenant, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. No longer is it up to us to try to figure out how to obey God over time. Uh, we read in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God will give us a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. He'll write his law in our hearts. He'll give us a spirit who will move us to obedience. He will move us to keep the law. He will empower you to be a covenant keeper. Some of you this morning need to pray. Your sins have been forgiven. You're attempting to follow Jesus in your own strength. You need to yield this morning and acknowledge your need for the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you. It's a gift of the new covenant. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time, break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion that will be here on the table. Uh, we'll also have ministry teams here in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on, but a couple specifics. One, if you're physically sick, we want to pray for you. I would say particularly, uh, we'll pray for any illness. I would say particularly if your illness is chronic. Some of you have grown used to walking with a limp. You're not, you, you're not out anything, giving God an opportunity to heal you this morning. If you come forward for healing, the ministry teams will make a cross on the outside of your hand. Uh, with oil and they'll pray just simply for God to heal you. 
Uh, we do want to pray for marriages. Again, that's a covenantal relationship. Many of your friendships are covenantal as well, but for some reason we seem to do better in friendship than we do in marriage in a lot of ways. Uh, we want to pray for marriages. If you've been married for less than five years, we want to pray for you. Uh, we're not, just that God would solidify your foundation and that you would go long with him. So everyone who's been married less than five years, please let us pray for you. Uh, you may be struggling in your marriage, and we would love to pray for you. And don't try to do the math and say, well, if people know I've been married longer than five years and I go forward, they're going to think, don't do that. Just come and let us pray. We'll pray for God to make a good thing great or to make a, a bad thing great, wherever you are. We want to pray for God to strengthen your marriage. You may desire to be married and you're not yet. Well, we'll pray for God to get on it for you and for him to bring somebody into your life as soon as both of y'all are ready. And we'll pray that. So uh, we want to, again, anything that you have going on, but I would say particularly around those issues of marriage, if you've been married five years or less, if you're struggling, please let us pray for you. If you desire to be married and you're not yet married, let us pray for God to make that connection for you. If you're helping with ministry, if you're helping with communion, please come forward. I'm going to say a prayer, and then Bo will lead us through the rest of the service. God, we thank you that you're a covenant, a covenantal God, not a contractual God. We would be in so much trouble if there was fine print. We have a hard enough time with the main things. God, we thank you for the gift of your son. And we thank you that he kept covenant perfectly. And he extends that righteousness to us. He pays the consequences for our covenant breaking. Death. And he extends to us the benefits of his covenant keeping. Righteousness. And so I pray for every man and woman in this room this morning. That we would stand in the righteousness of Jesus you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, let coming forward for communion this morning be an act of faith for you. Will you hear the voice of your Father calling you home? Do you respond by saying yes? God, I pray for those who are weary and tired. I pray that as they come forward, act of bread and juice, I pray, would represent a spiritual reality of your spirit nourishing and strengthening and filling them. So thankful for the benefits of forgiveness and the gift of your spirit that come in this new covenant. We thank you for physical healing, and I pray for those whose bodies are broken. Would you bring healing today? It's a mystery to us, but measure of faith we have, we're just going to ask. We're going to ask you to heal people who've been struggling for days and decades. And God, we want to pray for marriages, both for their own sake and as a parable of your covenantal relationship with us. God, I pray for marriages that are struggling this morning and for an extra measure of grace. God, I pray particularly for husbands 
to wash the feet of their wives, that you would renew husbands this morning in their commitment to do what's best for their wife, regardless of their wife's response. God, I pray for those who have been hurt in marriage, that you bring healing to those hearts. Pray for those who are lonely and desire to be married, that Immediately, God, I pray, of, of relationships. And God, I pray as well for spouses to come along, that you would bring people together and form new families. We're asking you to do all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can stand. I bet we'll need more ministry teams. So if